Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with two news editors, Lauren Peller and Sarah Roach, who recently attended the commencement ceremony. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Leah. This was University President Thomas LeBlanc's first commencement. What did he tell graduates? LeBlanc didn't really elaborate on this year being his first commencement ceremony. He mainly left it up to other speakers to talk. But when he did speak, he said that members of the class of 2018 should contribute to whatever they pursue in different ways and that they should aim to distinguish themselves among other people in their community. He didn't really go into depth. The only note of it being his his first commencement was when he said that he wanted to take a selfie in front of the Capitol building, which is the view that Um, attendees had in the background of the commencement. So he took a selfie with faculty um, in front of the Capitol building, and then he took another selfie with the graduates in front of him. And that marked his first commencement ceremony. And then he went into a little bit of detail um, with advice to the graduates. And at commencement, there's always a student speaker, and typically there are honorary degrees that are awarded. Can you guys tell me more about that? Sure. Mina Matthews, an international affairs student, she was a student speaker this year. And during her speech, she reflected on visiting D.C. when she was younger. And she noted that she remembers saying to her parents that she wanted to be the president one day. And then she further went on to explain how now she's standing in front of over 25,000 people, reflecting on how GW and being in D.C. shaped her experience. Experience, as well as mentioned how GW shaped her classmates' experience in D.C. She also noted being a woman of color, being a first-generation student, going to GW was fulfilling the American dream she always wanted. Her parents came from India, and they wanted to provide her the best future possible. And she said going to school at GW completely embodied the American dream that her parents had for her and that she had for herself. And now, an intern in the Obama White House. My parents, like so many others before them, had given up everything to come to this country from India with dreams of a better future for their children. That day, I was reminded how powerful their American dream that they paved for me and my baby sister really is. She said, one of the biggest lessons I learned during my time at GW is that each of us had the ability to cross fences, walk across lawns, or open doors we never dreamed we could. Additionally, the honorary degrees at this commencement were Alana Myers-Taylor, she's a double alumna and Olympic medalist, and former university president Stephen Knapp received an honorary degree. Both honorary degrees mentioned about the challenges the graduates will face after graduation, and they provided some key tips to the graduates about ways to combat issues they'll uh, foresee in the future. They also talked about if you encounter a failure, uh, you could just pick yourself back up. Let's turn to the main speaker at commencement, Marsha McNutt. What did she have to say? Marsha McNutt is currently the president of the National Academy of Science, and she touched upon many different topics when speaking to the graduates. Her main focus was about hope. She said that graduates should use their purpose to become a beacon of hope, and she kept referring to the word hope many times throughout her speech. And she also was, when she was referring to hope, she was referring to the fact that a lot of students and people across America are 
losing hope in their government and losing trust in, in the government. And she wants students to be a beacon of hope in this time where there is a lack of hope. McNutt also talked about being a leading woman in science. She's the president of the National Academy of Science. She was formerly the editor-in-chief of an academic journal called Science, and she talked about how she was usually one of the only females, or one of very few females that were part of these departments or part of these organizations. He knew that deck was stacked against me. Far too many women before me had failed because of the male culture that was not welcoming. So he sent me to Navy SEAL Team School my first summer to learn explosives training. After I graduated first in the class, upon returning to geophysics, I had no problem with the male culture. And no one meshed with me. The moral is, hope is contagious. And it's a good kind of contagion. Leading up to commencement, what was the student reaction to having Marsha McNutt as the main speaker? A lot of students criticized the university's decision to select Marsha McNutt as the commencement speaker. They said that there is a committee of students and officials that were supposed to come up with who they wanted as the commencement speaker together. Um, and students said that even though they were part of that committee, they weren't really part of that decision-making process. But University President LeBlanc defended the choice to select McNutt. Also at the commencement ceremony, when University President Thomas LeBlanc mentioned Marsha McNutt to receive an honorary degree in addition to giving her speech. Many students in the audience also booed. Well, thanks for going out to commencement this weekend and telling us about the speakers. Yeah, anytime, Leah. Yeah, of course. Sarah is also here to talk about where students are going to live after graduation. Based on who you spoke with, where are students gravitating toward living? A lot of students are choosing to live in a city when they graduate from GW. More specifically, a lot of students are going right to D.C. So based on an article from the Wall Street Journal, about 40% of students graduating from GW are going to work or intern in D.C. after they graduate. And based on what students are saying as to why they're so attracted to D.C. is because there's a network of alumni and professors that they've developed professional relationships with during their undergraduate career. So it better aligns them to be able to pursue a job in D.C. because those professors have those connections and the alumni network that is already set up in D.C. because so many alumni live there to help these graduating seniors secure a job. But students aren't just going to D.C. They're going to other cities as well, right? Yeah, there are a lot of students that are also going to New York City, uh, New Orleans, San Francisco. And again, those professors have those connections not only in D.C., but to opportunities in other cities as well. There was one student who I spoke with who said that she was going to work for Teach for America, and that program is based only in cities. And she said that even though she wanted to stay in D.C., she was assigned to work in New Orleans so that she could pursue this opportunity. But a lot of the students that are staying in D.C. after they graduate are pursuing jobs in a range of fields going from law to communications to public policy. Some students are just staying in D.C. without a job secured because they're in close proximity to those opportunities that they can continue to like use those laws alumni connections and wait for something to pop up rather than going back home and finding something there. In addition to having good job connections in a city, why else might a student want to stay in a city right after graduation? 
So some students said that during their undergraduate career, even though they were in Foggy Bottom, they were right in the city, they weren't able to do some of those activities that they really wanted to delve into, like going to museums and visiting all of the attractions that they thought they would be able to have time for during their undergraduate career, but they really didn't. So they're looking to stick around with other peers who are also staying in the city to spend time with them. Another aspect of this is just the fact that they're young and they don't really have many responsibilities aside from taking care of themselves. Most students don't have a family coming right out of their undergraduate career, coming after they get their undergraduate degree. So they said they have the energy and they just want that fast-paced lifestyle before they settle down later on in life. Do you know how many GW alums are currently living in D.C.? There are about 90,000 alums living in D.C., and GW has a few networking events that they host throughout the year so that new alums can connect with those who are already in the area, and they can like work those connections and land something that they want to pursue if, if they were to stay in the city. I'm here with our Metro editor, Danny Grace, who's here to tell us about a recent lawsuit. Thanks for coming on, Danny. Yeah, thanks for having me. Walk me through the backstory to this lawsuit. On May 10th, five women filed a lawsuit against the university. In the lawsuit, these women alleged that the university did not protect them from the hostile work environment that had been created at the Institute for International Economic Policy at the Elliott School of International Affairs. In the suit, the women detail the multiple accounts of sexual misconduct and assault and how those incidents affected their mentality at work. They, some of them had to cut back on their hours. Many of them didn't feel comfortable working in close proximity with the alleged assailant. And some of them didn't even feel comfortable even just walking to work alone. Can you give us an example of an incident that the women cited in the lawsuit? The incidents were actually pretty similar for all of the women that are alleging that a student who works at the institute and is in a supervisory role compared to the women who brought the lawsuit took advantage of them after he had gotten them drunk, either at parties or parties that they were already at, and he forced them to come home with him. And during all of these incidents, the women alleged that they were slipping in and out of consciousness, and even though they tried to remove themselves from the situation, it was very difficult to do so. Did the women try to report these incidents at all to the university or anyone else? The women allege in the lawsuit that they did try to report the activity that was happening in the office, both to their supervisor, the general operations manager, who is also one of the defendants, Kyle Renner, and one of them even filed a Title IX complaint and then received an email back, and that was the extent to which they heard about what the office was going to do about their problem. When the women finally were able to get in touch with Renner for a meeting to talk about behavior in the office, what he allegedly told them was that sometimes they're just going to have to work with people that they don't get along with and that his hands were tied. And what were the counts for this lawsuit? Essentially, there are three main categories for which they are faulting the university. The women said that GW allegedly allowed for a pervasive and regular climate of sexual hostility in the workplace and said that by doing this and forcing them to work at home and cutting back on their hours but not enforcing any punishment, they've violated the D.C. Human Rights Act. Secondly, there were multiple alleged violations of Title IX policies, which the women said that the university failed to promptly and appropriately respond to the alleged sexual harassments and didn't take any remedial steps to follow up with the complaints that they filed. Lastly, the women said the university allegedly violated Title IX by failing to promptly and appropriately respond to their complaints. They didn't take any remedial action, any complaints they filed, and subjected them to further discrimination by keeping them in the workplace. 
Lastly, the women said in the suit that GW acted negligently and recklessly by failing to adopt policies that are in place to handle complaints of sexual harassment. To remedy the violations of the D.C. Human Rights Act, the women are also asking for GW to implement training for employees about Title IX. This is the second lawsuit against the university that alleges violations of Title IX in the last month, and there have been at least five in the same vein in the last academic year. Right, and we both worked on the story about the most recent lawsuit, which was similar to this one in that a student was also alleging that she felt Title IX policies and procedures had been violated when the university had handled her sexual misconduct case. And in GW's recent history, the Title IX office has fallen under scrutiny, especially when it became under federal Title IX investigation last summer. As this lawsuit is not yet settled, we'll for sure be checking back in with Danny and see what's going on with this case. I'll be sure to keep you updated. Lastly, here's an update to the recent changes to the university's Title IX policies. At last week's Board of Trustees meeting, a set of new Title IX policies was approved. And while these policies were initially announced at the faculty senate meeting earlier this month, there were a few slight changes that came about last week. The most noteworthy change was that mandatory reporters, so faculty who are required to report an incident of sexual misconduct if a student brings this issue to them, will no longer include clinical faculty. And this is to prevent the doctor-patient confidentiality from being compromised in case a faculty member is serving both the role of faculty member and also medical professional when an issue of sexual misconduct is brought up to them. This change came after several faculty members were concerned with the doctor-patient confidentiality being compromised at the last faculty senate meeting. One of the policies that will be implemented starting July 1st will be moving away from a hearing board model to determine the outcome of sexual violence cases and instead using a single investigator model. This falls in line with the majority of our peer schools as 8 out of 12 peer schools use a single investigator model. And this is something that a lot of Title IX experts have said has been a national shift where universities are recognizing that a hearing board can often be re-traumatizing for survivors where they have to rehash the details of an assault to multiple people multiple different times. Whereas with a single investigator, you're only talking to one person and oftentimes don't have to retell your story so many times that it causes more anxiety. Experts said that in a hearing board, students are less likely to be able to make themselves sound more favorable or appear in a different light because nobody will be editing their statements. Rather, they're just going to be candidly talking. With these drawbacks in mind, administrators said that they will frequently review the policies and continue to update them as needed. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Matt Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen, video editor Ariana Dunham, and contributing photo editor Ethan Stoller. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Danny Grace, Lauren Peller, and Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week. <laughs>